Okay, got it. Got it. <laughs> hey, good morning, Crossroads. Well, I can't start without giving a shout-out of glory to God for such a beautiful day in these colors that we saw driving in here, huh? Should I? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Or did you sleep while somebody else drove in? I mean, it was like dramatic. And I just have to always, think, you know, when you see these brilliant displays, uh, look past the colors and see the Creator. I mean, it's got to drive you back to Him. And what a wonderful God and wonderful Creator we have uh, to provide all of this for us. And to, uh, you know, the, the amazing thing is all these colors, and they, they never clash. Which, to me, is a remarkable thing, because a lot of times I get up in the morning and put on something I think looks really phenomenal, and as I'm walking out, Marty lovingly and graciously looks at me and says, you can't go out like that. (laughs) And then she helps me get the colors right. So anybody here glad that God always gets the colors right? You know, it's a good thing, right? Well, I'll never forget the first time I went whitewater rafting. You know, I'd heard about the, the trauma of whitewater rafting, and they have a rating system. I, forgot, I forget what this particular ride was rated, but I remember showing up at the place, and they put this geeky-looking helmet on me and uh, put me into the raft with several other people, and I'm immediately kind of like breaking out into a cold sweat, except for the fact that as we launched down the river... The river was calm, blue sky, white puffy clouds, birds, beautiful wildflowers. I'm going like, wow, this is a piece of cake. And then I heard something. And I went around the bend, and I saw something. And the closer I got, the more traumatic it looked. And pretty soon I, I, was, I was twisting and turning in the traumatic tyranny of the rapids. And, you know, I think life is a lot like that. You're just kind of smoothly sailing along. Everything's fine. And then you hear something. You go around the corner and you see something coming straight for you. And then you're lost in the trauma and could be tyranny of trouble. It's really only three kinds of people here this morning. Those of you who have been through difficult times in the past. Those of you who are going through troubling times now. And those of us who will go through troubling times. You can't avoid it. We live in a fallen place. We live amongst a fallen race. We're fallen people. And as one commentator said, this world is so fallen, we should be surprised that anything good happens at all. Job said it right when he said, man is born to trouble like the sparks fly upwards. So the issue is not, will you ever experience trouble? (laughs) The issue is, how will you respond? And the way that you respond will... Either take the trial that you face and bring it to productive ends, or 
It'll dig your life more deeply into a pit of despair and disappointment. So how you respond is not a throwaway issue. And thankfully, the God who loves us, who understands our trouble, teaches us how to respond. And there are a lot of places in Scripture where God takes us on our journey and navigates us through the white water and helps us respond. But I think one of the most profound and one of the most clear principled passages is in the wisdom literature of the New Testament in the book of James. I'd like to have you take your Bibles, which I'm sure you brought, and if you didn't, share one with the neighbor. Are we passing out Bibles this morning? Do we still do that at Crossroads? They're gone. People have stolen our Bibles? <laughs> Good. <laughs> May every thief read the Bible. <laughs> James chapter 1, uh, let me read through this text, and then we'll unwrap it and ask God to use it in our lives. James chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes, so who is he talking to here? What kind of people? Ethnically, Jewish people. Interestingly enough, of the dispersion. But one of the dynamics in the early church was that as Jewish individuals accepted Jesus as their Messiah and were willing to openly claim that, they came under great persecution from their fellow Jews. And that persecution was often so hot that they actually had to pack up and leave town and move to a new place, take their family. And so these are uprooted Jews who are all over the Roman Empire and thinking they were relieved of the persecution at home when they packed up and went somewhere else, only to find that in the Roman Empire the persecution was even more acute. Uh, So these are people who've lost their jobs, and so they're economically challenged. They're in economic trouble. Uh, They get out into the Roman Empire and notice that the Roman idolatrous empire that controlled almost every single aspect of life has now marginalized them, not only in their work and the guild that they belong to, but has marginalized them socially, that they don't fit in their world. Worse yet... um, As we learned just uh, two or three weeks ago, whenever, uh, um, who is our, help me with this, thanks, that's why Marty travels with me. When Neil Martin was sharing about the horrendous persecution of the early church, uh, some of them were actually lit, covered with tar and lit to light the streets of Rome. You might have had a father or a brother or a sister thrown to the lions, so there's a whole, whole wide breadth of troubles that they're facing primarily because they have claimed Jesus Christ as their Savior. So that's the context. So he says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, how is he going to start a letter to these people who are in such deep weeds in their lives, such major trouble? Well, obviously, he's got to address the issue that is right at the top of their, of their list, and that is the trouble in their lives. So he begins by saying this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, so that you may become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what he is saying saying to us at the core is that in God's hands, suffering is productive, positively productive, personally productive. 
so that we never take the world's view like suffering is something to be resisted. I got dealt a really bad hand, but that understanding that God never wastes our sorrows. That he has a productive, positive, personal reality in mind for me. And that he does that through what he calls various trials. Now, I think it's interesting. We just need to camp here for a minute that there are all kinds of trials. Uh, from the least kind, so you're late to work and your boss has said, don't ever be late to work again, and you have a flat tire. <laughs> Not a good moment. Um, you're standing at the ticket line to get on the plane and you read canceled. You know, one of those things. Or um, between that and all the way over to maybe you grew up in a family where abuse was prevalent. Maybe it's like what Charity and Linda and Doug have gone through this year in the loss of Derek and their baby. So, you know, it's a wide spectrum of all kinds of trials that we face. But the point is that God will use them to make us perfect and complete. For instance, God uses some trials uh, to make us patient. That's one of the great virtues of a follower of Jesus Christ, that we trust God, and in trusting God, we are patient people. So... When I hit the ball into the same pond three times on the golf course, being a Christian, I don't have enough words to use. Because <laughs> Fooey doesn't quite do it right there. <laughs> but if I open my heart, God may be saying, hey, I put that in there the third time, dude. You know, can you please learn how to be patient and maybe have a great attitude to be a testimony to the buddies you're playing with? <laughs> or maybe God needs to take our cold, calculating, judgmental hearts and walk that heart right into the middle of some devastating circumstance so that he breaks that, that cold heart, melts that cold heart, and gives us a heart of compassion so that we can understand what other people go through, that we can be a source of compassion and comfort to people who are going through something. And maybe God wants to take our stubborn, proud hearts, which we're all kind of born with those kind of things. We're born fallen, aren't we? And he wants to bring something into our life that will invade that, that pride and stubbornness and break it down and make us truly humble. Instead of being stubborn, make us flexible so that he can move us and navigate us into life patterns when we wouldn't want to go there. Maybe God wants to give us a good sense of justice so when we experience what is really wrong by wrongdoers and understand what injustice feels like, that we can go out into the world and become an advocate for justice and be used for him in justice. Maybe God wants to use some various trial to make us wise. You know, how many of you know that some of the trouble you get into is probably your fault? Do I have a witness here? So how stupid can you be? And so the Lord permits our stupidity to bring across some kind of problem so that he can make us wise. 
about life and how to, in front of so many college students, especially if you're a Cornerstone student, I shouldn't tell you about all the trouble I got into in college. So I won't. Now remember, finally putting a little sign on my desk that said, Think first, stupid. Which was the beginning of wisdom for me. So, you know, I don't need to take this out any farther except to say that, that the point of the passage is that God does permit trouble into our lives for very productive purposes so that we can become complete and perfect. And the ultimate redemptive purpose is to make you and I like Jesus Christ, to take these fallen, wayward embarrassments to Jesus. That's your life. That's mine. And enable us then to become more like him. And sometimes it takes trouble to get that done. Because when you just live on easy street, there's little need for any kind of transformation or reformation in your life. So God never wastes our sorrows. So the issue is then how do we respond when troubles come in order to make these outcomes come about? Well, the first thing is, and this is the weirdest thing in the text, what does your text say? My brothers and sisters, what does it say? Count it all joy. So how weird is that? And I need to tell you what he's not talking about here. He's not talking about you being happy in Jesus for some devastating experience you've had in your life. Have you been or ever been around people who, uh, you know, have some like, well, my dad was just killed in a head-on crash. Really? Well, how are you doing? Well, I'm so happy in Jesus. Have you ever been around people like, do they bother you? <laughs> do people like that bother me? I want to throw the Bible at them and say, Jesus wept. What do you think about that? He's not talking here about all of a sudden, in the midst of your trouble, being happy, happy in Jesus. Now, the reason I know that is because the Greek word that's used in the text for count it, all joy, is an accounting word. So if you put it in that context, it's not saying feel it a joy thing, but you are to reckon it or count it to be a joy thing. Like, let's say we could envision it in an accounting context as a ledger sheet with all kinds of columns. All right, so now, how are you going to respond when trouble comes? You have tons of options on this sheet. Number one, you've got the blame option. I'm going to blame other people, and I'm going to blame God and put a check there. Not very productive, but you could do that. Uh, there's the, on the ledger sheet, there's the anger column. I'm really angry about this. Which is never a long-term productive response. Now, I understand that there are stages of grief. I, I get all of that. But we're talking about lingering in these columns. Or you, there's a self-pity column. And you could count this to be a thing of self-pity. And you could throw a pity party. By the way, don't ever invite anybody to come to a pity party. No, seriously, they'll try to cheer you up and wreck all your fun. You know, just... 
You have to have your own pity party all by yourself. You could um, go to the bitterness and revenge column. You could put a check there. I, I count it to be a bitterness and revenge kind of thing, which only will hurt you, obviously, in the long run. Maybe there's the slander column. Somebody's done something to you, and the only way you can really get back is to take them down. So you can put a check there. You put a check in the withdrawal column. I'm just going to withdraw. I can't trust anybody. I can't trust God. I'm just going to withdraw. Check. You could put a bail on God check, right? That's a column. So that's how I'm going to bail on God. If he treats me like this, I'll show him a thing or two. He can't have me anymore. By the way, you can run, but you can't hide. Oh, just try to remember that. You can bail on him. He'll never bail on you. That was a great place for an amen right there. You missed it. Yeah. <laughs> but we do. He's a bail on God. Or you can all go all the way over to that column that says joy and put a check in the joy. You're going to reckon this to ultimately be a thing of joy in your life. That God never wastes your sorrows, but that in trouble, they are productive in his hands if we respond correctly. So he's not asking us to be weird and strange. He's asking us to count it a thing of joy. Which reminds me of Jesus in Hebrews 12, chapter 2. Why did he endure the terrible agony of the cross? Talk about trouble. Talk about Jesus moving before us down this road of trial and difficulty and far higher levels than we would ever experience. How did he get through that? The writer of Hebrews says, in Hebrews 12:2, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Because on the other side of the cross would be resurrection and life. And I think the joy actually is gathering you to himself. That you become part of him. And you belong to him and he belongs to you. So he was willing to pay the price of the trial for the joy that was set before him. So that's response number one. We're going to do a fourfold response. You've got to just put a check in the joy column. The second response is to not let your emotions drive the bus. I mean, that's total disaster. You know, my emotions, your emotions are fickle. Do I have a witness? Immature. Random. Now, I want to say real quickly that emotions probably have to be on the bus. Seat four. Aisle. I mean, you're not going to do this without emotions. The issue is you can't let emotions drive the bus because you'd be checking all the wrong columns. So he goes on to say, count it to be a thing of joy knowing this. So it's what you know that drives the bus. I want to talk about that for just a minute. I have a, a list of all-time favorite sporting events. We don't nearly have the time for me to take you through the whole list but uh, I want to talk about one of them this morning. It's kind of getting to be a little ancient history. It was way back in the early 80s when uh, the U.S. hosted the Winter Olympics at Lake Placid. Now, that was before most of you were born, so just trust me. I'll tell you this story. 
Now, if, if, you read, if you read your history books, back then the United States was kind of in the ditch. They were up against Russia, this huge nuclear enemy. We were trying to do an arms race to stay equal with them. Uh, we had had um, several of our, our people were in hostages in Iran for many, many, many days. And we felt ashamed that Iran had taken our hostages really for months so we got our best troops together and put them in, in helicopters. And this was going to be like fly under the radar and rescue our hostages. And, the, and they crashed in the desert. You know, like, and our president, Jimmy Carter, said, The problem with America is we are in a deep malaise. Great optimistic leadership there. But anyway, so all of that to say is that, that was the environment. You need to know the context. And so there we were hosting uh, the Olympics and our hockey team was going to play Russia, kind of a metaphor of international tension and struggle. The problem was, back in those days, to play on an Olympic hockey team, you had to be an amateur. So we basically had little college kids out on the ice, playing against these genetically engineered Russians <laughs> who were taken away from their parents at the age of three. And, and it was just like... Oh, is this going to be such an embarrassment? Do any of you remember this? Wow, that's a, that's a good, you know. So I remember they played on Sunday. I remember coming home from church Sunday and turning it on, right? See, knowing that, oh, we're getting killed. And we were ahead. And it was the second period. And I couldn't believe it. And, and I paid for the whole couch, but I'm only sitting on the front third. You know, and I'm going like... You know, I'm like totally enraptured and knowing that we're going to, we'll lose in the end, but look at this, we're going to be ahead. And it's just tense. The whole time I'm just like, ah, Washington. and we won. And we're, no way, we beat the Russians. And it was like total trauma watching that thing. It was a very troubling event, but we won in the end. Now, it was such a huge thing that they actually showed it again that night on, uh, on TV. They just replayed it for everybody to see in case people had missed it. So I'm watching it again. <laughs> and I'm using the whole couch. I have a little bowl of popcorn, have a can of Pepsi, put my feet up, totally relaxed, same game, same scoring sequences. So what gave me peace and rest? Something that I knew made the difference. I knew the outcomes. You're going to say, well, Stoll, if God tells me what the outcomes are, I'll have peace and rest in the midst of my trial too. <laughs> but, you know, he doesn't tell us the outcomes, does he? But my point is, if you know the one who's managing the outcomes, if you know how God is managing the outcomes to productive outcomes, ultimately, you can have rest based on who you know. When it comes to trials, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And what you know about this one, who you know. So if you don't focus on your emotions, but you plant yourself in what you know, what can you know? Let's just go through a few things that we can absolutely know. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that um, when God permits trials, actually most tr translations use the word temptations, but literally it's the Greek word for trials and trouble and testing. When testing comes into your life, God will not permit you to have more than you can bear. You can know that. 
If God permits something in your life, he knows that you can carry the rock. I like to think of it like this. The God who knows your load limits will limit your load. And that he will make a way of escape. So it's not going to last forever. There is an exit ramp. And he will make a way of escape so that you can endure it. Not bail on it. If you know that, you can endure it. So that's one thing you can know. Another thing that you can know is that God is managing the process. That thing, you would never want a surgeon to go, oops, or a dentist. So all of a sudden, your, your life hits the wall. God's not going like, oops, getting the angels around like, what are we going to do now? Get out the whiteboard. We got to restrain. Something really bad happened. God never does that. He's always managing the process. My mind runs back to Job, where Satan comes before Job, and God asks Satan, where have you been? And he says, walking to and fro across the face of the earth. Sometimes I've been traveling a lot, and when I come back, Marty says, where have you been? Walking to and fro across the face of the earth. The parallel stops there. I want to say that right now. So God says to Job, hey, or to Satan, hey, did you see my man Job, who is righteous above all other men? You know, I would, wouldn't it be wonderful if God would say that about you or me? Hey, did you see my man Job down there? And Satan said, yes, I saw him. And then Satan said, if you wonder really what's going on with Job, I need to do this very quickly, so hang in here. If you wonder what's going on with Job, he suffered for no earthly good. Satan had actually defamed the character of God before all the heavenly hosts and all the demons watching because Satan said, Job is righteous because you've been good to him. You bought his favor. You've been a sugar daddy. Anybody would be righteous and good and love you if you, if the, if you had been this good to them. But if you were to take it away, Job would curse you. What Satan was saying is, God, you are not worthy to be worshipped and adored regardless of what happens in life. So you have to buy people's favor. And that's the whole, that's the whole reason this happened. So that God could be glorified in a whole different realm than just this earth. So I'm, I'm watching Job through the whole thing like, if you only knew what was at stake, dude, hang in there, hang in there. And then God says to Satan, you can do this, but you can't do that. He starts managing the trouble. See, in a sense, you have to remember that God stands as the sovereign sentinel at the gate of your life. And nothing gets in that he doesn't permit to get in. He manages the trouble. Can't do this to our adversary, but you can do this, and that's all that gets in. Which leads me to the next thing you can know, is that he only lets in what he can bring ultimately to glory and to good, to his glory and to your gain and to his good. What does Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 28 say? That all things will what? Help me here. I can't carry this ball by myself. All things will 
work together for good to those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose, and it may be the purpose of a trial, so that this is the guarantee that whatever he lets in, ultimately, he will bring his glory, your gain, and your good through it. And if you don't think he can do that, then I want you to look at the cross. How many of you would vote for the fact that the cross is the worst thing that people could have ever done on this planet to take God in human flesh, innocent, hang him naked, embarrassed before a crowd, guilty, claiming that he is a criminal? I can't think of a worse thing that could have happened to somebody. I mean, my troubles and your troubles pale in a sense of insignificance compared to the cross. And when the cry, if you go midway through the cross and you freeze frame, you say, this is awful. Where is God? And he's, Jesus is put in a tomb and, and hell throws a party. We did it. We got him. You know, We got the Messiah. And they're having a three-day three party down there. And Beelzebub's sitting on the throne like, wow, we won. <laughs> and on the third day, some demon comes and whispers something in his ear. You're not going to believe it. He's alive. No way. And he rose again. And he did it so we could have redemption. And that God would be glorified. And that nothing, there is no power in this world of hell or anything that can defeat the glory of God. And he did it to your gain. How many of you are really thankful that Christ was willing to go through the cross and bear that trouble and then go through the resurrection so that you could sit here, hell canceled and heaven guaranteed? Do we have anybody in the house that's thankful for that? It's proof that God has the capacity to take the worst things and turn them to his glory and our gain. If you freeze-frame your trouble, you'll be in total despair. But God is the executive producer of a feature-length film. It's never freeze-framed. And in the end, as your journey and story concludes, there will be glory and gain and good. He guarantees that, and you can know that for sure. So not only do we know that he limits our load, he manages the process, he brings good out of bad, but that he'll give us grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul himself, with the thorn in the flesh, and I'm glad that we never know what the thorn in the flesh is. We say, well, that's not my problem. Since we don't know it, it could be all of our problems. And Paul said, in my weakness, God has become strong, and his grace is sufficient for me. So that when God permits that trouble to come in, he bathes you with a sufficient, abundant grace to hold you up and to give you unusual strength in the midst of it. You don't walk through this alone. He's a partner in the journey, and he keeps pouring the fuel of grace into your life so your tank is full and you can make it one more day. Have you ever been around someone who's gone through some, really is in process of going through some deep, deep tragedy? And you're going, I can't believe you're doing so good. We've all seen people like that. If you wonder what's going on, <laughs> so when God permits that problem to come, he just pours on the grace. You can count on that. You can know that. You can know 
that justice will prevail. Yes, but what about that person who did that to me? Romans chapter 12 says, put wrath in its proper place. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Will you please stop carrying this terrible burden that you have to get back and repay to someone who's done something bad to you? God doesn't give you the grace to do that. You don't have the strength to do it. You would do it wrongly, and you do do it wrongly. God says, that's my job. You know, I'll take care of your enemy. I'll take care of those who have abused you. I'll take care of those who've done injustice to you. You can know that. It's a promise. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, you're free to love your enemies, he goes on to say. I'll take care of them. You love them back. And you can know that whatever trouble you're in is personally productive. That's what the text tells us. If you cooperate with it, as we're going to see in just a moment, it'll make you perfect and complete, lacking nothing, and in a sense, much more like Jesus Christ. So all of that to say is, don't let emotions drive the bus. What you know has to drive the bus. And your emotions will come along for the ride. And these are just a few of the things that you can know. So number one, you count it joy. Number two, focus on what you know. The third response is you surrender to the process. Look what the text says. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let, little tiny word. Let it. You have to surrender to the process. Stop fighting against it. I love what uh, the Phillips translation of the New Testament starts out like this. My brothers, count it all joy when you fall into all kinds of trouble. Welcome them as friends. Do not resist them as enemies. That's a great way to look at it. Welcome them as friends. Do not resist them as enemies. Let, at some point, you and I, if we're going to have the freedom to let God do what he's going to do, we have to let trouble do its work. We have to surrender to it. Stop resisting it. How many of you have ever had surgery? That's a lot of us. All right, so there was something wrong with your life, right? I mean, you don't have surgery because everything's going well. There's something wrong with your life, big time. So you went to see the doctor, and the doctor goes, you got something wrong. You said to the doctor, what am I going to do? He said, well, we're going to have to have surgery. And you said, will it be inconvenient? He said, yes. He said, uh, you said, um, will it hurt? Yes. Uh, will there be a long recovery when I can't do the things I want to do? Yes. yes. And you said, well, if that's the case, I'm not having it. Not one of you said that. We volunteered for it. I mean, this is amazing. Okay. (laughs) We surrendered. We trusted the doctor. We knew something was wrong. Something had to get fixed. And it was going to be an inconvenient, painful, getting in the way of my want-tos kind of a process. And we surrendered. (laughs) It's like amazing. And not only that, but when they put us on the gurney and wheeled us into the surgery room and the doctor put the gloves on and the assistant handed the doctor 
the scalpel with this sharp blade on it, and we looked at it. We jumped off the gurney and started running around the room. And the doctor's trying to catch us and trying to, you know, do the incision while we're running all over the room. No, you didn't do that either, did you? But see, that's why do we, you know, when God's trying to get something done in our lives through a very inconvenient, sometimes painful, get in the way of my want to's experience, we're running all over the surgery room, refusing to surrender. No wonder he can't get the work done. So he says, let. Surrender. Let steadfastness, he says. See, it's being steadfast in the endurance. I love the word steadfast because it's a surrender type of word. It's actually made up of two Greek words, hupo, meno. Meno means to remain. Hupo means under. And they put both those words into one word. It means to remain under. Stay there. Don't wiggle out. If you've ever eaten a watermelon like out on a picnic table and you drop the wet, wet seed onto the picnic table, you can have a lot of fun with that wet seed. Just put your thumb on it and apply pressure. What happens? Out it goes. You know, you can aim it at somebody. You know, you keep the, like, watermelon seed wars right here. It would be a great video game, wouldn't it? Watermelon seed wars. I never thought about that. But, <laughs> but that's the, you know, when the stress comes, let steadfast surrender to it. Stay under. Stay there. Let God do his work. So you put a joy in, put a check in the joy column of the ledger, knowing you can do that, do the joy thing, if you know what God is up to and how he's managing it. And if you know what he's up to and how he's managing it, you can surrender to it. Then lastly, number four, don't ever let go of God. The text says, that every trouble and trial that comes to us is a testing of your faith. A testing of your faith. It puts to test whether or not you really believe in your God. This is a test. It puts to test whether or not you can really Trust him. And every time trouble comes, the more severe it is, the more, the more this option looks attractive. You can bail on God and let go and go on your own. Or you can say, I will never cease to trust him and cling more closely to him. It's a test of your faith in God. Periodically, we used to take our kids to the doctor to get a shot. So, you know, we'd take them, be holding them, and finally they'd call our name, and we'd walk into the doctor's office where the shot would be administered to the child. And some lady looked like she was a retired army nurse. (laughs) Totally lacked compassion. Would take out the needle thing, gleefully pop the air out of the end and make her way toward my kid. At which point, consistently, 
My child leaned back like this to me, said, why did you bring me here? Bam! I mean, why do you do that? You know, I never, that never happened. What happened? The closer this shot-giving nurse got to my kid, the more tightly they hugged my neck. I was their refuge. I was their, I'd brought them to the party. <laughs> and yet they, I was all they had. And by the way, we had a really good end in that. You know, we didn't want them to get polio or measles or whatever. They didn't know that. They had no clue. The closer the trouble got, the more tightly they hugged our neck. Don't let go of God. It's a test of your faith. I remember um, a couple years ago, Marty and I were over in the UK, and there was a little tiny village church near where we were staying, slipped in the back row on that Sunday morning. Just like just a scattering of village folk in the and they were singing like all the songs that we sing on screens. I thought, how cool is this? It's a global worship experience. And um, then the pastor at some point in the service said, I've asked Sister so-and-so to do the church prayers. So she walked up and um, lays her about a couple pieces of paper that she's going to pray through. And she starts praying about different things in the church. And then she got to this, and I'll never forget it. She said, and dear Lord, please bless Peter and Mary who have lost their baby this week. She said, Lord, I don't know. And then she just broke down and sobbed in one of those awkward moments in church. You want to say, hang in there, sister. We're praying for you. Stay with it. And then she kind of got control of herself. And she said, Lord, I don't know why you have taken three of our babies from our families in this church this year. I'm going like, oh my goodness. This tiny little village church and three babies have died this year? Oh my goodness. How can that be? She continued to pray. She said, Lord, we do not know why. In fact, Lord, it's not ours to ask why, but to trust you. So teach us to trust you. That was her prayer. Of course, you can ask why. You rarely get the answer. The issue is not why. The issue is who. And trusting in him. Lord, teach us to trust you. Wow. Which reminds me back to Job. But Job's wife finally comes to him, and in a moment of cheerful encouragement. <laughs> hey, Job, curse God and die. Nice. <laughs> Curse God and die. Later in the book, Job responds. I love this response. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Don't ever let go of God. At the end of the day, he's all you've got. And knowing what you know about what he's doing with the process, you can count it to be ultimately a thing of joy and be willing to surrender and hug his neck a little tighter. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for your word, which doesn't let just like sugarcoat life, but just faces, us, faces the reality of all that we face in life. And Lord, when troubles come, we thank you that with you we have confidence and that you will be breaking and melting and molding and shaping our lives through these troubles, that you don't waste our sorrows, that you have a personal purpose in mind. May we surrender and praise your name and trust you implicitly. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who suffered so well for us that we might sit here belonging to him. Amen and amen.